Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Dr. Stacy Cosmerly is a practicing clinical psychologist at the OICBT. She comes from a training background in emotion-focused therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy. Her current practice consists largely of working to support individuals in their development of skills for more effectively relating to and regulating their emotions and moving towards a more fulfilled life. Her personal and clinical experiences have left her with a deep belief in the healing that can come from changing our relationship to our emotions. All right, Dr. Stacy Cosmerly, welcome back to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? <laughs> very well. Thank you so much for having me back. You are very welcome. What is this, the third appearance for you on Thoughts on Record? Is that, have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, number three. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's a sad reality that this is one of the ways that we've been able to sort of catch up in a way, right? Because we're both so busy with respect to our practices and professional undertakings and personal undertakings that we don't, and we've not been in the office at the same time. So it's nice to be able to have this opportunity to stop for an hour or so and have a chat about some stuff that is uh, interesting and hopefully interesting to the folks who are listening. Yeah, yeah. Always a pleasure and grateful for these opportunities. No problem. Well, Stacy, uh, again, thanks so much for being here today. And I'm really excited to talk about the very important topic of mental health service providers seeking out mental health services themselves. As we'll talk about, many of us who work in mental health are certainly no stranger to challenges related to mental health. And many of us have been clients of mental health services ourselves at different times in our lives. Personally, I think this is a really fascinating subject that we really don't talk about enough, uh, or we'll talk about it in passing or in a very surface kind of fashion, but I'm hoping today we can kind of really drill down on this a little bit. And I think it's not discussed because there's some very real barriers to folks who work in mental health seeking help. Some of those barriers are, I think, perceptual, but some of them are also very real. And Stacey, I really hope that this conversation will reflect us doing in some small way our part to encourage our colleagues in the fields of mental health services and beyond really anyone working in healthcare to seek out the help they might need or to engage in, a, in therapy, even just as a growth exercise, as a way of exploring oneself and to figure out what makes one tick and to have the best life that you can. So one thing I thought it might be interesting to start with in terms of maybe just setting up a bit of context for the discussion is to have a bit of a think or, or a review of rates of psychopathology in mental health providers. Uh, admittedly, I didn't know too much about this going into today's podcast. I did a little bit of research and we'll, I'll share some of what I came up with. I would say anecdotally, I feel pretty grounded in having a sense at least that rates of psychopathology are probably higher than average, if not much higher than average in folks who work in mental health. Stacey, what, what kind of impression have you formed around the presence of, you know, mental health challenges in folks who deliver mental health services, even again, even if it's just anecdotal, I'm kind of curious to, to see what your observations have been, having been in the field for a number of years now. Yeah, I think my observation has been like, that every, almost every clinician that I know of has been affected by mental health in some way, either personally or, or someone they know uh, well. Uh, yeah, it's been my observation largely that folks 
you know, that's kind of what draws us into this field. There's, there's some personal significance somewhere. And, um, and then of course doing this work certainly has its stresses or, or, um, opportunity for us to feel triggered or, 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 um, shine light on maybe some issues within ourselves that either we knew were there and were ignoring or didn't know was there and comes out later. But yeah, I definitely think that it's more common than we would think. Yeah, I really agree with that. I often have the thought that had I gone into, I don't know, engineering or biology or, or something maybe not quite as people focused, where, where would I be with my own development? Like I have found providing therapy to be hugely challenging and has really pushed a lot of buttons and forced me to grow in ways that I, I don't think I just would have had the opportunity to had I been staring at spreadsheets all day or building buildings or, I don't know, collecting field samples, something to that to that effect. What, what do you think about that piece? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, I, I'm very, very grateful for, for this field of work in terms of the impact it's had on my personal life, on my personal development, and my training, actually. I'm very grateful. I, I did, I would say, the most significant piece of personal work that I've ever done in my life was uh, precipitated by, by my training, um, especially my master's degree, where we had to do a lot of work on ourselves. And yeah, I definitely don't, well, I, who knows, but I, I can't imagine I would have sought out that work independently had I chosen a field that didn't uh, force me into it. Yeah, it's true. I reflect back on being an undergrad in psychology, and I remembered the profound discomfort I felt around following up with research participants who had endorsed suicidality on one of our questionnaire items like that just felt like a monumental task in terms of broaching, you know, th that particular subject. I didn't have, I don't think the the skills or the confidence even be able to be able to do that very rudimentary kind of clinical kind of intervention, if I can call it that. So to think about the things that are normal to talk about and to navigate on a day-to-day -day basis now, 15, 17 years later, uh, it's really interesting to think about what life would be like without having been sort of forced to go through this growth in order to contend with some of the very big human challenges that we deal with on a, on a day-to-day -day basis, if not hour to hour basis. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't even think that I had very great emotion regulation skills at the beginning of my, <laughs> my undergraduate uh, studies. I, you know, I think I was pretty emotionally avoidant and using a lot of coping tools back then that were not the most effective and, and to now teach effective coping and effective emotion regulation skills every day. I'm very grateful and I'm always learning, obviously, still. But uh, yeah, I don't know that I would have gotten here had it not been for our training. Yeah, I think it's really helpful for us just to check in on that once in a while because I think it's very easy to get mired down in the drudgery of the job or some of the more challenging elements of it or the very, frankly, distressing elements of the job. But I don't, know, I don't think I'd do anything different. If it meant having to give up the opportunity for growth that I've experienced, I, I would uh, I would not do anything different yeah same same i'm very grateful for this field and i feel like it continues to push at least for myself i feel like it continues to push me to grow um there's no mailing it in days <laughs> or there's no days where you can just not be self-aware and and you know just show up and and do the task and then go home at five um which can be tiring some days but but you know very grateful for it at the end yeah. of the day <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's a good reminder that anything meaningful is probably going to have a certain emotional price of admission attached to it. So, mm, yeah. Well, just a couple of the findings that I want to share with with you and the audience that I found to be really, really interesting, and I think aligning with our anecdotal impressions that we've arrived at. 
Uh, I'm just going to quote a couple of papers here. So there was a paper by Pope and Tabachnik uh, in 19, 1994, excuse me. They did a survey of 800 psychologists and they found most of the participants had been in therapy. And of those, 61% reported that they had suffered at least one episode of clinical depression. Over one in four disclosed that they had felt suicidal and nearly 4% reported having made a suicide attempt. There was another paper by Gilroy, Carroll, and Mura in 2002. Again, where they sampled, uh, I think, I believe it was counseling psychologists, and they found that 62% of respondents self-identified as depressed. And of those with depressive symptoms, 42 report, 42% reported experiencing some form of suicidal ideation or behavior. And finally, in the 2009 APA Colleague Assistance and Wellness Survey, it was found that 40 to 60% of the responding practitioners reported at least a little disruption in professional functioning due to burnout, anxiety, or depression. And 18% had acknowledged that they had experienced suicidal ideation in the course of dealing with personal and professional stressors or challenges. I could go on and on. I have some other findings here as well. But the take-home message is very clear. It's that folks who provide mental health services are certainly not immune from experiencing mental health challenges. And in some instances, those mental health challenges can be quite severe, accumulating perhaps even in you know, the belief that one must take their own life in order to escape some of the distress or the overwhelming sadness or hopelessness that, that one is feeling. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting to think about it in terms of like the folks who got into this field because of mental health stuff and the folks who, and I'm sure there's an overlap, but and the folks who are you know, experiencing mental health as a result of this work. Um, so I think probably both are true, if not you know, overlapping. Um, yeah, I think it's so interesting because I, I I could very much see how your own mental health journey would direct you know, would direct you towards this path as a career, and you know, so certainly that was the case for for myself. Um, kind of what what piqued my interest, um, and then and there's certainly been times in this work where coping, you know, holding pain all day long uh, gets to you <laughs> after a while. That's a really interesting distinction that you made that I hadn't quite considered the idea that, you know, someone maybe perhaps with underlying issues who's drawn to the profession who wants to learn more about themselves. So, of course, that's going to show up maybe a bit disproportionately in a sample like this. And then there's also maybe the occupational hazard element of it where things might be relatively speaking okay otherwise, but when subjected again to slow motion human tragedy hour over hour, day over day, that's going to maybe you know, over time cause a, a kind of a, a, an overload of sorts where the person then there's cracks in the foundation, mm -hmm. then water starts to come through vis-a-vis -vis symptoms of depression, anxiety, panic, substance use, all sorts of things like that. But I think you're right. I think there's probably an overlap between the two for sure. And I don't know, I think one of the most interesting things about therapy and where I've done a lot of my own work on is what am I up to at any given moment within the therapeutic interaction? Right? Like there's what you tell yourself that you're doing, but then what are the unmet needs that are getting played out? Or what are the anxieties that you're trying to, uh, to, to soothe in that moment? Or what in the client is activating you developmentally where there's an implicit memory of that you don't really have access to in that moment, but it's getting, it's getting activated mm -hmm. in a way that you can't put words to, but your whole body's responding as though you've been here before. So I think those are really probably very human things, but I, I, I don't know. I, I've just really found that to be a really fascinating part of the, of the therapeutic experience. I, I think for me, I would say it's probably a confluence of the two. I've, I'm certainly no stranger to mental health challenges over the course of my life. And as I'll talk about later on in the conversation, I think have sought therapy numerous times. 
And I also think it's true that the job has been very difficult on in its own right. And the two have sometimes aligned and sometimes not. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that both of those elements have been operating at the same time as far as my own personal experience as a, as a clinician. Yeah. And I would say very much the same. Um, uh, yeah, uh, certainly my own journeys has gotten me here and, and has been, I don't know what you call that, uh, triggered, or I, I don't really like that language, but whatever activated, uh, in clinical settings at times. And I've had to do a lot of work on recognizing that and how, how to deal with that in a way that, you know, obviously continues to maintain professionalism and uh, continues to prioritize the client's needs above all else. Um, but then there's also been times where, yeah, just the nature of the work um, gets under your skin and, and can find you feeling a little bit less like yourself um, at times. I really liked what you said, though, about those like reflective questions of, you know, why am I doing this work <laughs> and getting really honest about that. I th actually, I think on the first day of my master's studies, one of my professors sat, sat us all down and had us write a reflective paper on that very thing. And, you know, we'd all like to think that we're, I, at least myself at the time, I really wanted to think that I got into this field for altruistic reasons. But when you really kind of sit with it and, um, at least where I was at at the time, there was a lot of my own healing work that I was, I think, hoping to do and a lot of my own ego <laughs> stuff that, um, uh, in terms of what it means to be a, a psychologist, what it means to be a healer, um, that I had to do a lot of work on so that that didn't continue to color my work, or at least <laughs> to continue to fight so that doesn't continue to color my work. But um yeah, recognizing that, you know, that those are fine reasons, but they shouldn't be the only reason maybe that we get into this line of work. Yeah, I so resonate with your observation, Stacey. I mean, if I think back about, if I think back to the circumstances that led me into becoming a clinician, I mean, some were just very pragmatic. I was going down a research road and the jobs and remuneration were not commensurate with what I was hoping for myself down the road. So I made the switch over to clinical. So it wasn't, purely sort of altruistic and like, this is my calling. I never really had that sense. I was like, no, this is a really reasonable way to make a living and you can get paid fairly well. And it's, it's, it's interesting and challenging. And then, yeah, just like you said, I think, I think if I look at my most problematic trouble spots early on in my career, especially with clients, it was a lot of kind of ego, self-sacrifice, uh, subjugation, pleasing, all stuff that you can very easily rationalize if you're still in a blind spot around it, but you eventually, the issue will get forced in a really profound way. And I mean, I'm happy to say after, I'd say a, a few rough years and a lot of therapy that my provision of care now has the least amount of me in it that I've seen to date. And I think there could be even still way less. I, st I think I'm still kind of contaminating in a sense mm -hmm. some of the work that I'm doing, but I, I feel I'm the least sort of active in that respect, if, if that makes any sense. And that feels really good. Like it, it, I love having a sense of kind of empathic detachment, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that way of framing it. Cause yeah, I think similarly, um, earlier patterns were taking in a lot of responsibility for folks' pain and, uh, feeling this need to do more than I, you know, job title allowed or, or, whatever which and of course is so lovely to, to think that we can help people but but there's only so much you can do uh, as a clinician in terms of offering of skills or offering of support before someone else has to take some agency themselves and in fact you know it's a necessary ingredient for them to take agency themselves 
And so similarly, I feel much like I've worked a lot on um, taking that part of myself out of this work and being able to be empathic and distant or empathically detached, uh, especially with folks who are pretty intense times of crisis, which I'm proud of where I'm at. It sucks that folks are going through those, those moments of crisis, but it's also nice to not feel personally responsible for pulling people out of that, for, for being there as a, with them along their journey, but not for being the sole lead in and pulling them out from that place. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's not about not helping. It's about providing, I think, the right kind of help. If I can be so bold as to even suggest I provide the right kind of help. But certainly I have a much better sense of what's the wrong kind of help. And the wrong kind of help has a lot of me injected in it, if that if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but that, but I think that's a journey that everyone needs to go through. And, you know, I think that's just very human. I, I think experience, experience in this kind of pro- profession is super valuable. And I think there's very few souls who kind of come on the scene right away who innately have a, such a good sense of who they are because you just need to be tested and you can't rush that. You can't rush that process of bouncing into all these different attachment styles and schemas and all the things that make psychotherapy is such a very rich and interesting kind of landscape to function in. Yeah, no, definitely. And and there's only so much we can learn in through school or through, through books. Like at least that's been my observation. I've gotten so much more just through practicing for, and I'm still fairly new in my career, but it's been four or five years now. Um, and just in that there's been so much that I've learned that 12 years of schooling <laughs> was a good basis, but not sufficient <laughs> to teach me. Yeah, I mean, I often feel that way for clients who are finishing up a group or some of the intensive programming that we have, that as much as, the, as they have just done 12 to 16 weeks of really maybe intensive therapy and work super, super hard, it feels like almost the beginning in some senses, right? It's now you just are, are sort of cooking with gasoline right at the very end of the process. But of course, it's not the end. It's, mm-hmm. ju- it's just another step. Agreed. I had hoped to talk about, you know, maybe some, some of the rationales to why therapists really should consider doing therapy. And I think one dynamic I just want to be mindful of as we go down this road is I don't want it to sound like a pity party in a sense, right? Uh, of like, oh, the job's so hard and it's this and that. At the end of the day, you know, I, I think we all have to take responsibility for entering into the profession, continue, continuing to stay into the profession, to, uh, you know, to develop tools in order to deal with the rigors of the job. Now, we may not always know... You know, it's like going on a long hike on a trail that you've never been on before. I mean, certainly you can look at the map, but there's no, you know, there's no substitute for actually walking the trail and seeing what's coming around the corner. But I think I just want to be very clear that, you know, in talking about some of the challenges of the job that might necessitate checking in with one's own help every once in a while, it's not to say that, oh, you know, like I'm a victim of the job or it's so hard to look at the load that's being placed on me. Like, I think we all have to squarely bear our burden with eyes wide open, say, hey, like, no, I choose to do this and it's meaningful and there's there's growth and it's hard, but all those things are also true. So that's why I do it. And I, I think if somebody maybe can't wrap their mind around that. I mean, that's a discussion for them to have with, with themselves. I, w- I don't want to impose my view on it, but Stacey, what do you think about that? The, the challenges of talking about the reality of the challenges that we face, but then also not falling into victimhood or like, like a, the proverbial pity party. Yeah, no, uh, that's a good question. Cause I definitely am someone who thinks that as like, as, as uh, therapists, healers, psychologists, or whatever, mental health workers, um, it, it's really important that we do our own work. At the very least, just for the sake of 
experiencing what it's like to sit in the other chair and to feel the awkwardness of being a client and and say like i don't know how i don't know you <laughs> and here i am gonna tell you all my deep, deepest darkest secrets and uh i don't know how much to share and i don't know how little to share and I'm very aware of the clock and i'm very aware of the fees and i'm very aware of right like there, there's something such so valuable of having sat in that seat um that i don't think we can appreciate the experience of our clients until we've done it um so but aside from the pity party story but i just i, I think it's so important that we we yeah we only ask our clients to do what we would be willing to do ourselves no yeah. i i totally agree i've i've derived so much benefit from being a client uh with respect to hopefully being more effective in the provision of of my own of care to clients God, I remember a couple of years ago having my first session with the person who I'm seeing currently. And I think literally, quite literally, like sweating through my entire shirt, <laughs> just with with anxiety and, and just not used to being that vulnerable. And what I was really struck by was I felt a complete loss of control. It's like, hey, I'm usually the one in control of the session. I'm usually the one asking these questions. I'm usually the one who, who's dwelling into what's going on and I get to sort of sit back and not be detached, but like, it's not me. That's, that's sort of the subject of all these inquiries and questions and background. And so I, I found it to be wildly uncomfortable, but something where, as I learned to lean into it was also profoundly healing. Yeah, no, exactly. And I feel like that discomfort, like I guess I've, I've been there as well, uh, sitting, sitting on the other side and, feeling incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, I don't want to be here super resistant. <laughs> um, uh, I've certainly felt my share of willfulness uh, as a client <laughs> in therapy um, and, and you know, grateful to have pushed through it and uh, seen it through. But, but yeah, it was such a deep appreciation for what we put our clients through um, every week when they show up and I'm asking them to do the hardest thing we've ever done week after week. Sometimes when they don't even really like, you know, when the, well, the, when the willfulness is stronger or, or when the fear is stronger than, um, than the drive to change or when change is super scary. So uh, yeah, I'm grateful that we put ourselves in those shoes. And I think it's really valuable for, for clinicians to try that. Um, yeah, just to see what it's like to sit in the awkwardness and <laughs> discomfort ourselves. I have so many observations uh, with respect to being a client as how it translates to the experience of, of providing therapy. I think one of my biggest observations was no matter how high my level of distress was, I personally never harbored an expectation that the therapist was going to save me or, or fix it or, or jump in. And in fact, I think I would have been actually been alarmed had they like say overstepped bounds or in some sort of, attempt at being therapeutic or made sessions go just a little bit longer to accommodate what we were talking about. I re actually really respected that there was very strong boundaries and very clear lines around, around everything really. And I just, it, it made me reflect on how much I was projecting onto clients, what they may want me to do or what they might expect me to do, but probably actually never really held that, that feeling at all. It was probably more said much more about me than it said about what the client was, was experiencing. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's uh, I, be interesting to have to really feel like the things that we project on or, or assume our clients are thinking as therapists and then to be on the other side and realize like, no, actually, it's nice that you have boundaries. It's nice that the, the roles are clear. It's nice that the expectations are clear. 
Yeah, boundaries equals safety to me. Like that, that's been my experience of that. And um, again, it just just more learning about oneself and and one how I think particularly with respect to attachments, right? Like if you have a client who's upset, you feel like that attachment with them is ruptured, even if it's just a therapeutic attachment in the context of that role. And then it's like, how do I typically fix ruptures and attachments? Oh, I should I'll please or I'll give more. Like it it, it pulls it pulls you in to old patterns, you know, obviously this is sort of psychoanalysis 101, but yeah, no, it's just, it's just amazing how much that stuff can play itself out. Right. Yeah. And, and then we end up kind of giving clients the same response that they've gotten in the past. And in our, it's our role to give them a different response, uh, which is so hard because it's against our, our own broken human nature <laughs> <laughs> so often. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, definitely so much value to be gained there and kind of feeling it out from the other side. And in terms of like the pity party question, I struggle with that because there's certainly times where you're feeling really burnt out and tired and, and, and vulnerable. And I don't know, I know certainly my own ego wants validation that I do hard work sometimes. <laughs> like I catch myself every now and then like sighing really loudly in the kitchen and like looking at my partner to be like, wow, it sounds like you had a hard day. <laughs> and when I don't get that uh, feeling, feeling frustrated, which is obviously just a sign that I need to do my own self-care and, and, <laughs> and uh, let go of my ego for a second. Um, but I, I think it's important. I don't know. I try to treat like self-care, whether it's through therapy or, or other modalities as a clinician, as just part of the job. Like if, if I, it sounds really like non-human, but if, if I was a machine, you need to be oiled every now and again to, to keep working and keep doing the job. And so I treat, you know, regular therapy and or for, for me, things like a, a yoga practice or whatever uh, journaling and, and meditation and all that kind of stuff tends to be it's a super necessary ingredient to be able to do this work um and so trying to remove the like i do because i love this work and i want to keep doing this work as best i can and that means sometimes i need a little bit more maintenance than other times but uh, i tried at least personally very hard not to view it from the lens of like it's not fair that my job is so hard. It's, you know, I, I love that my job is so hard, but it is so hard. And that means that I need to do extra stuff on the side to be able to keep doing this job for a long time. Couldn't agree more. I think one element I was missing from my commentary previously was, yes, we need to take responsibility for our decisions and all those kind of good things. And we also need compassion and self-compassion for that, which it, which it is like both are true at the same time. I don't think it's helpful to hang out either in the responsibility camp or just the pure compassion camp. Like there's gotta be a blending of the two. Mm -hmm. So as you're talking, I was like, Oh, I, I completely missed that piece, which, <laughs> which is very telling because I often miss that piece just in general, uh, around the <laughs> self-compassion piece is like, just suck it up. But you got to deal with it better. Uh, and it's really hard. And, and I love what you said, like, cause I love doing it and it's hard what I do and it requires maintenance in order to, in order to be able to continue to do it. It would be, you know, you and I both share a love of powerlifting, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to keep lifting for a long period of time, you have to be, you know, doing some stretching or maintenance or have rest days, take rest in general. You can't just go out and throw a maximum, you know, PRs every single day. <laughs> right. Because my chiropractor reminds me regularly. <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. And if we want to do these cool things, like uh, I, know I consider our job really cool, uh, very, very important job, but um we want to keep doing cool things we need to to take care of ourselves um and, and 
practice compassion and uh, take breaks, make holidays. And I, I don't know about you, but just even social breaks. I, I'm very grateful that my, my peer group is also very understanding that there's some days where I'm just going to go MIA for a day or two because I have no, no people skills left <laughs> at the end of the day. And I'm grateful that folks understand that sometimes. Yeah, it's so important to be attuned to your interpersonal battery level. And uh, even with loved ones to be able to communicate when you need space and just a time to, to pull away a little bit so that you can be the, per- the, the partner, the, the friend, the colleague that you want to be when you actually have the, the bandwidth for it. With respect to, okay, with the caveat that yes, we love our jobs and, you know, it, and it is difficult. I thought we could spend maybe just a minute or two on what makes it difficult specifically from, from the lens of, and some therapy to go with that might be helpful. So, I mean, I'll start us off. I mean, and I allude to this before, I think the interpersonal intensity of the job is makes it therapy almost sort of a no brainer in some senses, right? Your attachment style, your previous trauma, capital T, lower T trauma, grief, all kinds of things are going to get activated. And if those are unbeknownst to you, I think it's going to be extra difficult to navigate stuff that clients are bringing in that they want help with. Uh, so it's like having kind of like a clean, as, as clean a slate as a human can, or certainly an awareness of what the slate has on it. Maybe that's a better way of saying it in order to, to interface with what's, uh, what's going on. Stacy, from your perspective, what's maybe, a, a, another aspect of delivering services that really dovetails with maybe having someone who you check in with, or that would, it would make it extra helpful to have that person. Yeah. And I really like that because, yeah, we certainly get act- our own attachment style gets activated with folks. Our own trauma histories get activated with folks at times or at least, you know, reminded of regularly. Um, I think, too, just the 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 weeks where, I, I don't know, and maybe this was just a pandemic thing for myself, but the weeks where everything is really gray <laughs> or, or grim, um, where, you know, for six to eight hours a day we're just hearing stories of pain and you know again i'm very willingly doing this and 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 it's what a what a gift when we see pain turn into you know joy or fulfillment or or whatever um but hearing pain all day long and at least for myself especially during the pandemic when there was not all of my self-care activities were not available to me and i didn't have my release or i didn't have my space to go and remember that in my world, you know, it's not all pain all the time right now. Like I to see the other side of things. Um, that was for me, at least that was a time where I would have probably could have benefited from, from a therapist of my own just to help kind of release some of the weight of just soup being steaming and in, in, in pain all day long uh, with no reprieve in the evenings. Let me just build on that a little bit. I mean, I think if I reflect on my experience of that, I've had very, very similar experience, if not if not identical. And I've been privileged to do a lot of trauma work, especially with first responders, police officers, military, paramedic, things like that. The stuff that you hear that people have been through, either your client or the, the people that your client has been helping or so on and so forth, that kind of that really sticks to your ribs you know you even if you try to have sort of a, a healthy distance from it there's i don't know i think there's no way that it doesn't start to embed itself in in your fibers just a little bit and i think doing almost your own trauma work or i think it's more like grief work actually if i was to be really sort of thinking about it, it's grief work a lot of times is 
there's not too much to say other other sometimes it's just being seen and heard in 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 your own emotions and your the, the sadness that you feel around the the very very challenging things that you've heard about or so have sort of bore witness to but you know a little bit arm's length yeah i'm not sure if you've had that sort of a maybe experience but it's i i think grief work has been really helpful even though it's not been my grief per se you know it's just been picked up it, it's mm-hmm. you just it kind of sticks to you as you, as you migrate down the path yeah no, i think that's actually a really good way to frame it because it it's not even specific right like it's not like a specific story or a specific event that's leading me to feel feelings it's just this accumulation of picking up on people's grief picking up on people's trauma and and whatnot that it feels i don't know but i feel it in my body like it just feels like i I need to cry (laughs) or or i need to to grieve for a little while and and, uh, i think you know i've had this conversation before but probably about once a season i just need to put on some taylor swift (laughs) to have a good (laughs) a good release of all that grief um and uh in the pandemic at least when we weren't leaving the house and there was uh, at the time, at least I was living in a two-bedroom condo, so there was very little li- li- limited space <laughs> to, to go and have my big grief moment. Uh, I certainly noticed it more than ever. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I'm someone who's, I would say, you know, despite having a podcast and talking about this stuff <laughs> to thousands of people, I mean, I, I'm generally speaking fairly private as far as the expression of emotions goes, let's say. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not someone who necessarily wants to weep openly in front of of people, uh, it, it's very challenging for me to do that. So to, for so for someone to hold space for you, for to to be able to do that, and to know what to do to be skilled in handling that, I think is like really really therapeutic. Especially if you've got hangups about expressing emotions and you're wondering how people will, will react to that. I personally have found that to be a very very healing experience. That I'm not sure how many psychologists or mental health practitioners take advantage of. But what like what we provide. I guess that's another insight, like realizing the value and just seeing and hearing people in, in their strong emotions, in their grief and, and being able to skillfully sit with that. I think that that's something I've really, really taken from being a client is, and I don't think I had appreciated how powerful that can be sitting in the chair when you're really just kind of holding the space. It doesn't feel quite as heavy as when you're experiencing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I actually, that's an excellent point. And I, I was very fortunate to have that experience in the client seat, actually, and as part of my, my training in group therapy, uh, we, we did an experiential group for, as part of a class, and we all ended up sobbing uncontrollably in front of each other for quite some time. It was a, a very um, emotionally intense day, but there's something about being able to, to show big emotion in front of uh, caring others, um, and in my case, it was in front of like twelve caring others <laughs> in a university classroom. <laughs> but but it, it created such a sense of safety of, of like of, you know it, it gave me insight into the client experience of what it's like to be snot nosed and, and sobbing in front of people and not be you know embarrassing, but but okay, right? To, to work through my own shame around publicly showing emotion. Um, but what a gift to be able to feel held like that and to learn. But sometimes that's all, as a therapist, that's all you need to do is just hold space. If I can just sit with you in this, I can't make it better for you. I can't do anything really for you. I can just sit with you in it and, and hopefully try to convey a message of it's okay to just be whatever it is that you are right now. Um, so very grateful to have had that experience early on because I don't think 
I think my natural wiring would have want to fix someone's feelings uh, had I not had that experience early on myself. And then certainly my urge to fix still comes up periodically now and it's a constant fight to not want to fix people's feelings. But um, having been held and just sitting in it, very grateful for that learning. Yeah, it sounds like a really amazing and uh, and touching experience that you had at that. You're very messy. <laughs> beautiful nonetheless. <laughs> As you were talking, Stacey, I was grimacing to myself about, especially earlier on in my career, about probably when I should have just shut up and sat with the client and just, again, held that space for them, jumping into probably what would have been annoying problem solving uh, or could have been perceived as annoying problem solving. And I think even worse, that was all about managing my distress. It's like, oh my God, I have someone who's melting down in front of me this is uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable. We need to make this stop. Let's get some problem solving on the go. When the actual problem that needed to be solved was the person being validated and seen in, in exactly the moment that they're in. They don't need to actually leave that moment. There was real power and beauty in that moment. And taking them away from that was like, I, I think, a real disservice in retrospect. Yeah, I, I've definitely had those moments as well. And, you know, it's such it's a symptom that we live in such an emotionally avoidant culture that we see emotions as things to be fixed and it makes us uncomfortable witnessing but thank goodness we have learned that and I don't be but it's still a struggle to continue to fight that urge to fix every day and to just let someone be in their feeling and um, but yeah our, our culture has a lot of healing to do so we can learn that it's okay to just feel and to sit with others feelings um I don't think many of us got that kind of an upbringing. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So let's just summarize. We've talked about sort of the attachment pulls that can happen. We've talked about the kind of grief work that can go along or could be necessary with hearing all the kind of the things that we hear. I think another one, if I could gently point out, would be working in the mental health system in general which is typically kind of the orphan of most healthcare systems where wherever you're located, whether you're in Canada or, or Europe or the United States or elsewhere. I know there's folks all around the world who listen to the podcast, so I'm not meaning to exclude anyone. But typically, my, my experience in reading has been that mental health is often, again, the orphan of whatever healthcare system that it exists within. And you are left to try to help people going through extremely challenging circumstances with very, very little resources. And I, I find that to be, I would say there's a moral injury component to that if I was to borrow some of the language that I've worked through with, with my first responder clients where, you know, they, they, there's, they've been betrayed by their organization or something to that effect. I feel betrayed by the system or I have felt betrayed by the system, I guess, on, on some level or maybe even society. It, it's not a bridge very far to get to feeling that society really has it wrong with respect to mental health and, and yet you're still charged with dealing with the cleanup and, and managing all these really challenging symptoms. So I, I think if I reflect on some of the work that I've done, it's been navigating that kind of moral injury of being a, uh, a healthcare provider in a, into my mind was a very under-resourced system. Uh, Stacy, has that been your experience at all or oh, certainly okay? If not, I'm, I'm just kind of curious what your experience of that has been. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually a great point because I hadn't thought of that off the cuff, but um, so often, at least in my experience, you feel powerless. You see people who are suffering and the people who need our services the most can't afford it. And we can't offer services for free because we need to be able to afford to our, our, our lives. And, and 
the whole the whole financial piece period is is a I want to I want to curse <laughs> hard to wrap your mind around um, uh, and and the limited resources and and for the amount of times in a week where someone comes to you and asks to be referred somewhere and you have no idea where to refer them because everyone's waitlist is closed or there's just no services period or everything that's available is very expensive. Um, that powerless feeling repeatedly when we've chosen this field because we want to do our best to help, um, it, it does really get to you after a while. It really does. As I would often explain to clients, the I think it's the Beck model of fear or anxiety where you've got basically risk divided by resource. And really you can manage any risk provided that you have the resource to deal with it. The challenge is when you have a client who is say actively suicidal and you send them to the hospital, perhaps even with a letter that you've written or you call ahead, uh, which I've done on occasion to try and alert the folks that, hey, I've got someone on the way who's very seriously ill. And they get turned around, maybe getting a, perhaps getting a sample pack of Seroquel or something to that effect. Not always though, like, you know, I have a cl- I've had clients receive extremely good care, I'm happy to say. But there, there are times when I'm sure they are likewise managing their own constraints of resources where they have 15 very ill people and 10 beds and they have to tri- triage even amongst that group of people. That just seems profoundly unfair uh, on, a, on a variety of levels. So in any case, yes, that's, I really resonate with what you said there, that sense of helplessness and ultimately transcends to hopelessness over time where I wouldn't mind so much navigating that if I actually had the resources at my disposable, disposal to deal with it as as I would like it dealt with for a family member of mine. I think that's what really gets me about that. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I'm sure you've had this. We all have, you know, as being in this field, we do have family members who come to us and ask for, for support and resources. Yeah, for and, sure. and I'm a member of this system and I'm often as lost as you are. And, and I find that very disheartening. Um, I don't even know what else to say about it. It's very disheartening. It just is, you know, I, I get the system is doing the best it can, but we are so limited still. It sucks when someone that you love and care about comes to you for help and you've connected them with somebody and let's say it's like, thir- you know, a month out and you have to explain to them, like, listen, in our world, that is like light speed, mm-hmm. right? For, for, the, for the most part. Uh, that just seems so unacceptable. Like if somebody, we, we for instance, we, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, assuming the broader audience, but you know, if someone was presenting with a heart attack, you wouldn't be like, well, you know, we can see you in a month. And we know that depression has a certain amount of mortality. Psychosis has a certain amount of mortality associated with it. Bipolar. I mean, the list goes on and on, but we don't treat it the same way. So anyway, I don't want to get into a rant about the mental health system, but vis-a-vis the conversation that we're supposed to be having, I think we need support and validation in sitting with some of the big structural issues that really we have no control over and yet we have to navigate them anyway. Yeah, we have to navigate them anyway. And we have to, what's coming to mind for me is we have this innovation and we have to build trust in our clients when we are part of a system that's failed them. And I find that a really hard part of this job also is asking someone to trust me as an individual within the healthcare system when I know very well that the healthcare system hasn't 
serve you well. Heck, it hasn't served any of us well, <laughs> or as well as it can. I don't want to. I don't want to pass. Of course, yeah, everyone's yeah, yeah. doing the best they can, and it's wonderful in, in many ways. But, but um, I'm aware that many folks have have had really challenging experiences navigating the system, and then they get to my door, and I'm another representative of the system, and and trying to validate their concerns while also building trust. Um, can sometimes be very challenging also. I don't know if that really relates to our mental health, but it's it's a it's a difficult part of our job also. <laughs> I suppose. Oh, I think it I think it does. Again, you know, we're I think we're all wired on some level to to help. And when you're presented with a problem that you actually you know what the solution would would or could be, and yet the resources don't exist for that. And you want to have integrity with the client and not deceive them or lie to them about the reality of the situation. Um, it, it's, I, I think, again, it's that moral injury, right? It, it sort of, and it accumulates over time and it can lead to cynicism, burnout, pessimism, just kind of being like a cranky asshole in general. <laughs> if, 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 uh, if, if I can be completely candid about it. So, okay. So I think we've established some of the reasons why someone who, who works in mental health may want to consider uh, you know, seeking some therapy again to deal with either their own kind of structural issues or to deal with more societal level structural issues. Like there's, there's a lot going on that could probably deserves, I think to be unpacked. Now that said, there's probably, there's a lot, there's a lot of barriers to seeking help. If it was easy to do, we would all do it and, and we don't. So there's some challenges there. So I'm thinking, especially of students here in particular, like psychology students or counseling students or, you know, any, any of the careers that would lead you towards providing mental health services, how invaluable would it be to have all of those students, I think, go through therapy for exactly the reasons that we're talking about. And that also how impractical is that <laughs> at the same time for a variety of reasons. So I think we're, we're long past the days and many, areas where that was mandatory. I believe there was a time that it was, but I, I think we've, that that's long in the rear view mirror. Stacey, are you aware of any programs or any lines of training where that is even close to mandatory? I feel like the Adler school still requires it. Like more psychodynamic, psychoanalytic schools still require it as far as I understand. Um, and I know, you know, I did my master's at Laurentian University and we were really encouraged as students to, to do our own work, whereas as far as I know, many universities now don't. And um, yeah, perhaps even, yeah, there's a lot more fear of privacy, fear of, you know, uh, another clinician in the community knowing that you at one point saw it. So like, there's a fear of stigma, I guess, is what I'm looking for. Yeah, which is interesting and exactly the issue, right? Mm -hmm. Should a mental health clinician be worried about stigma from other mental health clinicians? It's so silly. It's so silly. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to be the reality. Yeah, exactly, right? I'm bringing it up sort of rhetorically. I, I, think, I think we can all imagine this, right? Like, I mean, I know on my latest... Uh, therapeutic journey, I had reached out to someone who I really trusted who also works in the field and say, Hey, do you know anybody good? Who's, you know, just a little bit outside of my circle, mm -hmm. which is, you know, fairly large at this point, because I've been practicing in Ottawa for, you know, a, a number of years. It, it's a challenge to find someone who you haven't supervised, 
who hasn't been at the practice that you're at or been in your program or any number of things. So eventually found somebody, but yeah, that was, I have to admit it was, it was, I wouldn't say a worry, but certainly a concern to me navigate it. Right. It's like, I don't, I, I need some separation here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you meant, as you point out, like the longer you're, you're working in a community, the harder that is to find someone who's far enough away from you that there's no uh, conflict of interest or, or whatnot. And I know as a student, I think, because um, it, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that I was a student, but the, the mentality was really like, you don't know where you're going to work in the future. You don't know where you're going to want to work. You don't know who's going to be your supervisor. So there was a lot of fear of reaching out to therapists in the community because there was it felt, it felt like burning a bridge, right? It's like, I, I might not then be able to work with that person someday. Um, so there was that piece, then there was the fear of stigma, and then, of course, there's the financial burden because the students were living off of nothing, and, you know, you know we can't afford 200 and some dollars a session. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, again, that's one of my other observations from being a client currently is even when one is you know, staunchly middle-class and and employed and making ends meet, no problem. Therapy is still very expensive, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wasn't shocked to learn that. I always had, of course, a sense of that. But when you're actually, you know, forking over the money, especially if you're doing something weekly, you know, if there's something going on, you know, it does not take very long to start to get into the thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always viewed it personally as an investment and, you know, I don't, I don't think you can even put a price on it in some respects if you're getting really good service. I mean, what's your life worth? What is your family's quality of life worth? You know, all, all those kind of things. But, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's still, it's still incredibly expensive. And I think I've been even more attuned to that having done my own therapy and, and I'm really thankful for that. And, you know, here in my role at the practice, I'm the director of finance and innovation and I'm often navigating financial issues that come up and I'm very thankful to have this experience because it really, really helps me sit, I think, very solidly in the perspective of the client and some of the tensions that they're navigating. Um, but yeah, therapy is not cheap by, by any means. But like you said before, Stacey, you know, we also have a lot of, well, of course, we have overhead, we have educations that we've had to finance over the course of 10, 12 years. So Obviously, it, it is what it is, but um, it doesn't take away the fact that it's inaccessible for a lot of people for whom it should be very accessible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was going to bring us on to another thought, yeah, but if you no, want to follow perfect, up. Perfect, yeah. Because okay. I don't know if I have anything else in terms of what stops us from seeking services ourselves. Also, time, commitment, I suppose. Uh, I know for myself at times recently you know, when I felt like it was probably would have been helpful. To, to consider another little rhyme about of, of therapy. Um, sometimes you just get so tired of sitting in a chair and talking <laughs> that, that by the time it's, it's time for your own services, I could see that being, you know, at least myself at times, it's been a thought that I've had um, where it's been a bit of a barrier. Um, I, obviously, I don't think that's a good enough reason not to, to seek services, uh, but I could see that being an additional barrier at times. Oh, it's still a reason. Like, if you talk to the average clinician, they're basically, you know, in front of somebody or on the phone or writing in notes, you know, basically between nine and 5 p.m. It's like, I have to say, thank God for the virtual provision of care. It's really allowed me to, I zoom into my session mm-hmm. and then with, with my psychologist and then I'll leave. I usually schedule a little bit of time after where I can kind of just decompress and consolidate my thoughts. 
and then I'm on to my own session. If I had to leave my office, drive a half hour, find parking, go sit there and do the whole thing. If, if an hour appointment turned into a three hour endeavor, I seriously don't think I'd be able to do it. And that's being a fairly efficient person. I don't think I'd be able to do it. So I certainly get that the time piece, although ultimately maybe an excuse if, if the issue is serious enough, it's still a very real issue for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I think another thought that I had around a barrier to seeking help, and God, I feel a little bit sort of wildly uncomfortable talking about this particular one, is just the sense of like, okay, like seriously, who's going to be able to help me? Like, if I can't help me and, and help myself, then how does, you know, who out there is going to be able to uh, assist me, right? And it, I don't mean that really from an, from an arrogance perspective, but really it's like when you work in psychology, or mental health, like you, you realize there's no silver, silver bullets. There's no magical solutions. There's not some magical person around the, uh, you know, behind a door who's going to fix it all. Like, so the, there can be a sense of like, man, I know all the tips and tricks and this and that, like what's left, you know, there, there might be a sense of uh, passive resignation or futility mm-hmm. around seeking help. Although I think to put the bookend on that little anecdote, I actually discovered that you don't know everything there's always somebody who, you know, there's, (laughs) surprise, there's people who can teach you things, (laughs) especially about yourself uh, when you're functioning in, in multiple blind spots. And what's really interesting is the, the the clinician who I see is much earlier in their career than I am, but that, that dynamic never comes into play Mm -hmm. in the therapy. I feel like sort of somewhere between an infant and like 13 years old, most of the time (laughs) in in our sessions. And uh, this person is, competent and knowledgeable and skillful in exactly the ways that I'm not. And I find that to be, I guess I would pass that along maybe as a tip for someone mm-hmm. who's, who's a, a mental health practitioner who wants to seek therapy is like, don't find you, uh, you know, go find somebody who's not you, who's strong in ways that you are not. And I think that will make a world of difference if you're harboring that sense that perhaps that you're beyond help or that no one's going to be able to, 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 to help you. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. Cause yeah, it'd be so easy to get lost in the, well, I know everything, especially when we're thinking of, I don't know, you know, if someone sat down with me and did a thought record, I think I'd be quite resistant <laughs> to, to, to doing that. I'm like, yes, yes, I know how to do a thought record. And then I, I, I'm sure I could learn something from somebody, but I, I would be quite resistant, but somebody who offers um, a very different style or a diff- different, modality than what I'm used to, I think would be really helpful. Um, yeah. And finding that is hard, but, but once you find it. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, the person who I see, I, I perceive them to be very strong in, you know, EFT, almost psychoanalysis kind of, or psychodynamic types of types of interventions. And that's exactly the kind of deep dive that I personally have, have needed and just don't really possess that innate skill. I'm, I'm kind of more, of a standard CBT therapist, maybe veering into schema therapy and and, and things like that. But yeah, that, that's a whole other, that's a whole other interesting question too. Is like when psychologists or therapists go to seek help, what do they choose and how? And I got to be honest, I mean, I searched around for some literature on this, and admittedly, you know, not for very long, but I couldn't find a whole lot with respect to this other than that psychoanalytic or psychologists who identify with a psycho- psychoanalytic orientation, they do seem to seek therapy more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I couldn't, fi- I, I'd be fascinated to know the, the standard CBT therapists of which CBT is the sort of regarded as the gold standard. What is the kind of therapy that they gravitated towards? Cause that wouldn't be my first instinct in a sense. Right mm-hmm. now that could also be because we have maybe the core foundational skills in CBT that, you know, we just need a 
maybe a different intensity of, of intervention beyond that. I'm not sure. What do you think about that, Stacey? Have you yeah. formed an impression of this or thought about it? Yeah, no, I, I'm inclined to agree. And I think because uh, CBT, yeah, I feel like uh, CBT, you would need a next level. Like I could see ACT being a really good fit for folks. Like I, I think someone guiding me through an ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy uh, framework, you know, really pushing me on the mindfulness, pushing me on the values, pushing me on you know, what's getting in the way. Um, could be useful, but I think if it was just a very skills focused CBT, you know, given that we teach the skills day and day, I'm sure I could learn a new way of teaching it, which would be great, but I, I don't think I would naturally gravitate to somebody showing me a skill I already know in a new way being the, the, the fix about, you know, yeah, act psychodynamic or, or emotion, fo- emotion focused. I feel like you just, you don't know what's going to come up until you're sitting in the chair, <laughs> at least in my experience. And, and I, I think a lot of my own therapy experiences have also been uh, EFT based and, and that I could see it always being helpful, at least from my perspective, I could see that always being helpful because it's always something that I was blind to and it always hits me unexpectedly and it's always intense. And I'm always very grateful for, for a clinician who can lead me through the processing of what was hiding under the surface there. A hundred percent. I still, after, you know, two, three years of sort of fairly intensive therapy at this point, like have, you know, head slapper moments where I'm just like, oh my God, like, how did I miss that? And yet I did, but I'm so grateful to have had that, that insight. And a lot of it's variation on themes. Like it's, it's never sort of super surprising, but I mean, sometimes there are surprises. So again, I think I've expressed this on the podcast I had asked uh, my psychologist before, like, you know, how deep do you think this all goes? And I loved her answer. She said, as deep as you can tolerate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so, Never ending. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, me, you know, I think that's why maybe a lot of the psychologists that I know are very, very bullish on the idea of integrating psychedelics into psychotherapy because there's some sense of like, can we break down even more barriers than we can sort of willfully, right? Like it would be so interesting just to be a complete journeyman within one's mind mm-hmm. and to be able to explore all the resources. Anyway, you don't necessarily have to comment that on, on that, Stacey, but it just struck me as that, you know, for someone who's looking to get beyond a thought record, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, sky's the limit. It seems to be with respect to where one could go these days, or that certainly seems to be the direction where, where things are going. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I, I think oh, we've, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but just I think um, tools to help us go deeper, to help, tools to help us see our blind spots, such as potentially psychedelic assisted therapies, um, it, it hopefully will allow us to strengthen or sharpen our, our edge so that we can be better clinicians. And hopefully it's also a really wonderful tool for, for clients as well but um yeah I, I see that being a potential tool when we get to a point where we've done all the therapies ourselves and we need the next level although you know again, you, you never really reach the peak of you know, let's finish the game of therapy <laughs> i don't think ever but but no. it's a, a stronger tool or a potentially stronger tool uh, that could be available to us but I, I can only imagine being more often than not helpful so Stacey, I'm just checking, uh, keep an eye on the time here because I know you have a bit of a time constraint today and so do I. What, one thing I'd be really interested to get your uh, feedback on is how this conversation has felt. 
I know for me, if I was to sort of check in with my somatic feelings and, and emotions, like it's been pretty activating actually. You know, I've, I've, I felt very anxious. I think kind of almost tearful at times. Like it, it, it's clearly stirring up a lot. Like it's almost, it almost does feel like a therapy session and, and then, and then it has that sort of unexpected, like, uh Oh, doors are opening and you never know who's going to kind of walk through. So I, I'm kind of curious how this, how this conversation has been feeling to you. Yeah, very similarly. I feel you know quite restless uh, in my seat and um, uh, a little bit anxious. I I, I don't know if, if it's okay for me to kind of hypothesize where that's coming from, but I for me, I, I think talking about well, a you know criticisms of the system that I'm a part of always feel really vulnerable because um, I think a lot of this conversation is this duality of of wanting to be real with my feelings while also like being frustrated with the system and also being very grateful wanting to be open as a, as a human in this world but my own experience uh, in as part of the mental health system both as a client and and as a clinician um but that also feeling very vulnerable um i feel like it's all you know as clinicians we're always doing that dance of how real can I be here while prioritizing the needs of, of my clients and not making this about me? Um, like when is my sharing helpful and humanizing and when is my sharing taking over um, or, or putting the spotlight back on me? And, and so I feel like a lot of this whole podcast conversation has been this dance of like, okay, is it okay to say this? Is it not okay to say this? Uh, which speaks to, you know, the nature of our work where we're doing a lot of dancing and, and trying to make judgments on things at the time um, and wanting, this is such a human job and wanting so much to be a real human with, with people in the in the room and just be authentic and be, and yet being very aware that sometimes too much sharing is not helpful. Yeah, I totally agree. I resonate with everything that you've said, Stacey. Yeah. It's like finding that balance between allowing some window into our humanity so that we can bond with clients and attach with them in that really, in a, in a therapeutic alliance, but really remaining grounded in our role and not losing sight of the ultimate priority of the, of the client's well-being. And I have to admit, I mean, I feel that pull in this conversation as well. Like it's, there's no client here in my basement. <laughs> I don't see a client in your room. Like we're not providing psychotherapy at this particular moment. And yet I feel that same weight. I, I feel this weight of kind of, I wouldn't say invalidating what I'm, what I'm feeling, but really wanting to downplay it and not be super candid about the experience of being a psychologist. But that's actually exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with you is to be really real about it. And, and I, there's just so much coming up around it. It's really, really fascinating. Like I just feel really anxious about coming clean about this stuff. It feels like, I'll say something wrong or I'll be, I'm going to be, I'm going to violate some sort of like cultural code within psychology or I don't know. It, it's, I, I think this goes really deep. I'll have to think this is probably good to talk about in a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh gosh. But yeah. I guess while we're here, I think this has been a struggle of mine for, I think the, the, I guess it, it kind of ties on to this idea of the stigma of seeking therapy as a therapist like we quoted the stats, you know, a higher proportion of us than not have had mental health histories. Um, I'm, I'm sure all of us have been affected by mental health in our families in some way, shape or form. Um, we do this work that is taxing uh, and yet, you know, it still feels unsafe for us to talk about it. 
we're really not sure how much of that to share, especially with clients, but let alone with each other. We always kind of want to present this air of I'm strong. And I, I, I think for myself, especially in my, my studies, the worst fear was that I'd be perceived as, uh, you know, emotionally unstable and, and, and not competent. Um, yeah, there's this, this constant dance of, yes, we're supporting everyone talking openly about their feelings and talking openly about mental health. And we know that there's mental health amongst us. And yet it's so uncomfortable to talk about. I just find it like kind of funny. <laughs> um, really, we're, we're putting ourselves in such a strange vibe. Well, okay. How about this? I mean, I think, I think the notion of being effective in talking about it never goes away. Mm-hmm. Right. So one might say, say you're harboring, I don't know, some, some very terrible traumatic experience and you want to be seen and heard in that it's probably not going to be as validating to randomly share that to somebody sit, you're sitting beside on the bus. Mm. Right. Mm. So that's a little bit apples and oranges to what we're talking about today, but it's sort of the same thing, right? It's like, mm. how do we talk about this stuff, but then also remain effective in talking about it. And I don't, again, like I, I don't think it would have actually been helpful or interesting or maybe <laughs> perhaps we've just done, done this, but you know, just talk for an hour about like, you know, how tough the job is and, and needing psychotherapy and this, that, and the other thing. But, um, I sort of lost my train of thought now, but again, like my, my intent in this conversation today was just to be really real. And I think really to try again, like I said, the outset to do our part, to help it make, just feel a little bit more safe for colleagues who are out there who feel that they've been on the fence about doing therapy or, you know, wherever their head is at to maybe give people a nudge and to, and to normalize it and to normalize the experience of having a conversation like this, where you feel, I don't know, it feels like kind of some gross combination of like self-serving and like narcissistic and like too much about me and like blah, 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 blah. And and yet I know probably people will on some level find it validating to hear another human talking about their experience and and to hear of your experience. And I, I, like, I know both are true. Yeah, I, I agree. It's yes, yeah, it's so icky. It's like a such a, a, a icky space to be in. Um, and, and this has been I don't know. I don't know if this is in your experience, but it's in my experience pretty consistently throughout all of this. Right? The the it's easy. I found it's often easier to, to take on the role of therapist and to to hold other people's emotion than it is to veer into the territory of talking about ourselves or, or working on our own stuff. Again. So why we got into this? <laughs> let me let me work on your your stuff so I don't have to look at my own. Um, and, and then when it comes time to talk about our own, as much as I feel very passionately that it's so important that we talk about our own and that we we do our own work and that we are vulnerable sessions. And I don't know about you, but heck, it's like it's what keeps me going in this job. Like you know, my own experience of healing um, through through therapy. I've having felt deep, deep pain and being in a place now in my life where that is a rare thing for me, that is what keeps me going in days where you're sitting with someone in total distress who wants to take their own life. And, and that gives me the the grounding to sit with them in their pain because I've seen it through both sides. And yet oh, talking about it is weird. <laughs> <laughs> you really, I mean, that's such a beautiful thought, Stacey. And yeah, no, I just, I completely, I'm really just reflecting on, on still like how much I 
relish being kind of more in control and in the quote unquote, the pilot seat uh, as, as a, I feel more like a client in this kind of a conversation. And I'm not sure if that's obvious to the audience, but my, my body's very much telling me that like, you know, there's, there's some sort of danger around. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to think more about this. I think it's, I think it's very, I'm really grateful to have had this conversation with you today, Stacy, and for, for all that's come up. And I know it's going to be really uncomfortable editing it. I know it's going to be really even more uncomfortable releasing it, but I almost think that it just needs to happen regardless. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I'm also in the discomfort and the, uh, the nervous giggles and the squirming in my seat. So I'm very much with you, but uh, I'm grateful for the conversation. I think it's an important conversation for us to awkwardly get through because I don't think it's spoken about enough. In fact, I, yeah, again, the stigma in the education system these days seems to be even kind of counter that right where we're just sold this idea that we need to be strong and well and not talk about it and so i'm glad that we're talking about it and and even though it's super uncomfortable <laughs> absolutely i mean i think again going back to the students for a second i mean all of us i think have to navigate that line between supervision and therapy at times where there's an issue that a, a, a trainee may be struggling with and it's certainly more appropriate for that issue to be unpacked in a therapeutic environment. But if, you know, of course, if it's impacting the work, then, you know, it becomes a, a point of discussion for supervision within much more limited context. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I wish we were talking more openly about this piece and uh, I wish it was a little bit more baked into the culture overall and, and normalized. So again, hopefully we're doing our little small part today to take a step towards normalization uh, because we we need the support and it's and um, again the job super meaningful and we need the support both are true. Yeah, exactly. Well, Stacy, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. I've, it's been a really you know despite all the anxiety, awkwardness, sweating, trembling, <laughs> <laughs> non-specific uh, feelings of dread, uh, I've really enjoyed spending this time with you and having this conversation. I think it's a really important conversation. Thanks for making a bit of time. I uh, I really really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, Stacey, we'll take good care and I'll look forward to, to uh, hopefully seeing you around the office uh, at some point soon. Awesome. Thank you. you okay, soon. take good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.